It's been a good day. If you got a Bible, open it up to Romans chapter 10. I was thinking about this uh, during the, the singing. Uh, you know, this week, um, I found out that although Apple watches may be waterproof, they don't float. And, um, and so I don't, you'll notice I don't have a watch. And so that's either good news or bad news for you. We'll determine by the end of this. Um, but we are preaching through the book of Romans. And so like I said, if you got a Bible, you can open it up to Romans chapter 10. We're gonna be in verse five. And verse five is gonna start with the word for. And I've told you this often, that anytime you see the word for or therefore or so, it's hearkening back to what he just said. And so the statements that he's going to say in verses five to verse 17, so we're gonna look at this week, but just to kind of recap quickly for you in case you weren't here last week or in case you were and you may have forgotten or you're watching online. Um, we've been talking over the last several weeks just teaching through Romans chapter nine, and then we're in Romans chapter uh, 10 now, and then we'll get into Romans chapter 11, just kind of treating these three chapters of the book um, kind of almost as a series within this series because they deal with some really great theological truths that if we're honest, they are sometimes hard to understand. And one of them that we talked about last week was just this idea that those that God saves, he saves by sheer grace. He doesn't save because they've done something or they deserve something. And so grace is all about this attitude of earning because we can't earn our way into it. We can't earn our way into this relationship with God. And so Paul has to belabor the point over and over again that we're saved by faith. There's this righteousness that comes by faith, and that is we receive what someone else did. It's not something we can work our way into. And so he talked about that in the first four verses of chapter 10. He's going to pick right up where he left off in verse 5 of chapter 10. So let's jump in there and see what he has to say for us. It says, for Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. Verse six, but the righteousness based on, based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. Now let's stop and talk here. Again, he's contrasting this righteousness by faith and this righteousness by works. And righteousness is just a big theological term that I tell you this often just means to be made right with God. And so we are made right with God by faith in what someone else did, not based upon what we did. And so he's getting at this as an example in verse six and seven. He says the righteousness that's based on faith does not say who can ascend up to heaven and who can descend down into the abyss. Now, when we read that, and I gotta be honest with you, when I read that a while back, I was like, what the heck is Paul talking about there? I don't know if you ever asked yourself that question when you're reading the Bible, but I just want you to know I ask that question as I read the Bible, so it's okay. Because honestly, it, this example that Paul uses feels a little obtuse to us. It's like, what is he talking about? Ascending up into heaven, bringing Christ down, uh, descending down into the abyss, bringing Christ up. Here's what he's getting at. Again, you have to remember he's contrasting righteousness that's by the law, because he says, Moses said, if you're going to try to save yourself by being good, you better nail it. You better be perfect. And that's the problem with trying to save yourself by what we do. And now he uses this example in saying, that's as pointless or as useless as trying to ascend into heaven and bring Christ down. You can't do it. And it's also as useless as trying to descend into the abyss and bring Christ back up. So he's using those two phrases to show the, the futility of trying to save yourself. He's saying, listen, you can't do this. And, and by the way, being saved is not something you try to do. 
This is why I belabored the point last week when I talked about you know, being a pastor to people here in the South because there's a lot of times that we talk about Christ, we talk about the Bible so much that we just get confused. And so you can ask people, hey, are you a Christian? And the response in the South a lot of times is, well, I'm trying to be. And here's what I wanna lovingly push back to. It's not something you try to do. It's like the example of asking my kids. If you ask my two kids, hey, are you Pastor Jason's kids? And if they said back to you, well, I'm trying to be, you'd be like, well, you either you are or you're not. Now, the idea is of my kids, of like, if they're trying to be, the concept may be they're trying to live up to be Pastor Jason's kids, which that is not something that we put on my kids because they're just kids. And what he's getting at here is, listen, being a child of God is not something you try to do. In fact, it's as crazy as trying to get to heaven by yourself. It's as crazy as trying to ascend to heaven, bring Christ down, or descend into the abyss, bring Christ up. It's either something you are or you're not. So my kids are my kids, not because they did something to become my kids. In fact, we did something for them to become my kids. And that something is awesome. Praise God, right? And so the whole point is, some of y'all get that joke later, all right? The whole point is, being a child of God is about having faith in what God did for us. And this is why this is so important. Because humanity has not only disobeyed God for all of our existence, but we do it in such a way where we're trying to earn something ourselves. I mean, you go all the way back to Genesis, the first 11 chapters of Genesis. If you just want to read just like a great history of the human race and be like, Mm-mm, yeah, this is true, just go read the first uh, chap- 11 chapters of Genesis because God creates us. He makes us for a relationship with him. We disobey and we hide. That describes all of us. And then God covers that and then says, gives them the command, be fruitful and multiply. And then they go out and start doing that. And then they just multiply sin. So God starts over with the flood, gives them the same command again, be fruitful and multiply. And you want to know what the people do in Genesis chapter 11, instead of spreading out and multiplying, they stay and build a tower. They build a tower, and here's what they say to themselves. We're going to build a tower and ascend into heaven. And this is a reference to what Paul's talking about here. It's like, that's crazy to try to do that. And so you go read chapter 11 of Genesis, and God's like, ha ha, see how this goes. And he spreads them out. And so Paul's saying, if you want to try to save yourself, it's as ridiculous as try to building a tower to heaven. It's as ridiculous as try to ascend there yourself. And it's also as ridiculous as trying to bring yourself back or bring Christ back from the dead. You can't do it. And this is why, and and I say this often, but this is the whole clincher to the Christian faith. The Christian faith is not, I follow a good guy who said some stuff, right? Like he was nice to kids and held sheep and he had long hair, right? No, he wasn't a hippie, he was God, right? But I don't follow Jesus just because he did that stuff. I follow Jesus because not only did he die on the cross for my sins, but he came back from the dead. That is the crux of Christianity. And Paul's saying, listen, you don't have to try to come back from the dead or bring Christ back from the dead because he did it. And so since he did it, what can you add to it? 
So then he's getting to, okay, then if the righteousness is based on faith doesn't say that, then what does it say? Which I'm glad you asked. Look at the next verse. Verse eight. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Verse nine. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, there's the clincher, you will be saved. See, here's what Paul is getting at. He is saying, listen, you don't get to heaven by trying hard. You don't get to heaven. And this is the fallacy of the modern world in which we live because we live in a very pluralistic society where people have all these different belief systems about God and kind of the, the enlightened view that people take is, well, you know, at the end of the day, all roads lead to God. And, and, and Christians may be coming up on this side of the mountain and Muslims are coming up on this side. And, you know, we all are gonna get there as long as we're sincere. And I told you last week, well, you can be sincerely wrong. And here's Paul's whole argument. Faith is not based upon us climbing anything. It's about Christ coming down. And this is what he says when he's saying this, the word is near you. The word is near you. He's not up there like you have to travel to get to him. And he's for sure not still down there. He's here. He came here. This is what John says in John chapter one. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. In verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Christianity is the only faith system on the planet that doesn't ascribe to us trying to traverse up to God, but we believe in the guy who came down to us. So why is there not a lot of roads to God? Because Jesus didn't take a lot of roads to come down. He took one, the cross, the resurrection. And that's the point. What Paul is saying here is Christians, come on, man. Our whole faith system is built upon not us trying to do something because if we were trying to do something, then Christ wouldn't have come down. And how do we know that what Christ did worked? How do we know? Because he came back to tell us about it. And, and this is what I say to people often if I ever have this conversation and I'm not being mean. And if you are here today and you don't believe this, I'm not being mean to you. I just want you to intellectually think about it. And let's be honest. But if I walked around and told you that I was God and I did all this nice stuff and I even died on a cross for you, and if I stayed in the grave, then how do you know I was right? You don't. This is what I will say to people. I don't believe Jesus is the only way. Okay, die, come back to life and tell me you were right. Because until you can do that, you're gambling, man. You're gambling. And so here's what Paul's saying. As Christians, we have the most evidence over anybody else. Because Jesus, not only did he say some stuff, not only did he heal people, not only did he claim to be God, not only did he die on the cross brutally, but he came back. And when he came back, it validated everything that he said. And Paul's saying, listen, if you believe that, if you confess that, in faith, you'll be saved. Now, we got to stop and, and chat about this for a little bit because <laughs> I don't know about your upbringing, but I say this often. I didn't grow up in church. And when I got saved in middle school, I went to a small East Texas Southern Baptist church. And I praise God for that. Went to Southern Baptist Seminary. Praise God for that. But one of the things I heard often about trusting Christ was praying the sinner's prayer. 
And, and so I was asked that a lot. Have you prayed the sinner's prayer? I'm like, I hope so. I think so. And, and, and honestly, I got to be honest with you now, the sinner's prayer, I'm like, isn't that all prayer? Isn't all prayer sinners praying? And I didn't know what people meant. It was like, well, did you pray the sinner's prayer? I'm like, well, where is it in the Bible? And here's what's crazy. I'm not trying to offend you. It ain't in there. There is not in the Bible a thing called the sinner's prayer. Verse nine of chapter 10, and I quote it almost every Sunday, is arguably the closest thing we have to it. But here's why, and I wanna push on you a little bit. Because there's two elements Paul says to having this faith, having this righteousness that comes by faith. The first is you confess with your mouth. The second is you believe with your heart. Now those two things are A, B, then leads to C, you're saved. And so the confession part is what we talk about when we say, have you prayed the sinner's prayer? But there is no prescription in the Bible that says you have to confess this certain thing. And here's why I have to be straight with you. I wrestled with years pastoring this church. If you remember way back in our conference center days, if you were here, there would be a lot of Sundays where I would not say at the end a quote unquote sinner's prayer because I didn't want people to think that just because they said some words that they were saved. Now I finally, and I, and I got pushback to that. And by pushback, I mean criticism, like people left over it because there's like, well, you didn't give a chance for the sinner's prayer and they don't walk the aisle. That is not biblical. I'm like, well, show me in the Bible where it's at. It ain't there. In fact, that came about in the 19th century from a dude named Charles Finney, who was a part of the modern revivalist movement that came about out of the Great Awakening. Now, I'm not opposed to it. I'm just saying, I don't ever want people to think that they are saved because they raised their hand, walked an aisle, and said some stuff. Because here's the point. The point is not, have I confessed it? The point is, do I possess it? It's not about confession of faith. It's about possession of faith. Now, let me say it in the reverse. Everybody who believes in their heart that Jesus came back from the dead, they believe that, they possess it, they confess it. And so if you believe it, you're going to confess it because Jesus himself said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So I'm not saying that confession is not important. I'm not saying confession is not part of the process. All I'm saying is I just don't want people to think because they prayed a prayer when they were seven that they're saved if they don't possess it. You have to believe it, which is what Paul says next. He reverses the order. Look at this in verse 10. For with the heart, one believes and is justified. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. So he reverses the order here. And here's what he's getting at. What's most important is, are you trusting in your heart? Not have you prayed a specific prayer. Now, I don't have a problem leading people in confession. I finally wrestled that down in my own heart, and I said this. All right, Lord, I'm going to help people confess, and you make sure they possess. It's not up to me to make sure. It's just up to me to offer it. It's up to the Lord to make sure that it happens. 
But I want you to understand something that just because at Sunday school you prayed a prayer or you walked an aisle at a camp doesn't mean that you possess faith. If you're not actively trusting Jesus right now based upon the fact that he came back from the dead, it's a belief thing. It's a heart thing. And it's a motive. And this is what we got to understand that when we trust Christ, the Holy Spirit changes our hearts. And when he changes our hearts, then we confess it. So again, I'm not saying we shouldn't confess. What I'm saying is it doesn't happen outside in. It happens inside out. And that's important for us because again, I want us to understand at the end of the day, if we're not trusting Jesus and Jesus alone, then we are not a believer. But here's the good news. If you are trusting in Jesus and you have the most evidence to trust in Jesus because no one else has come back from the dead, never to die again, but Jesus. And so if you're trusting in Jesus, you won't be put to shame. You can trust in him. It will go well for you in the end. And here's where our modern culture tries to push on us all the time and tries to get us to be ashamed for trusting in Jesus. You mean you're trusting in Jesus, you're trusting in Jesus, and this is where we just kind of cower back and try to not defend ourselves, but then you can always ask questions too. Okay, tell me what you're trusting in then. If not Jesus, then what? Well, I'm trusting in my own reason. Okay, die, come back to life again and tell me you were right. That sounds like I'm being snarky. I'm not trying to be, but I'm I'm trying to get you to think. Paul's saying here, man, we have the most evidence to believe because Jesus came back from the dead. And if you'll believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, you will not be put to shame. We have the victory in Jesus. He won. And if we trust in him, we'll win. And here's where the news gets even better. Look at the next two verses, verse 12 and 13. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, now don't read into these words what he's not saying. He's not saying everyone as in all people. And this is where people push back sometimes on the whole sovereignty of God part, where they're like, well, if, if... the gospel is not for all people, then I just can't believe that. No, the proclamation goes out to all. It goes out to everyone. And when the Bible uses those words all or everyone, it's talking about distinctions or types of people or people groups. And this is why he said contextually, that's why there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. Because see, to the Jewish person, they thought that only the Jewish people, the righteous people, the good people were going to be saved. And so they classified themselves as Jews and Gentiles, and Gentiles is just everybody else. And Paul uses the word Greeks and Gentiles interchangeably here. And his reference is saying, listen, the gospel is not for one type of person. It's for all types of people. It's for all socioeconomic groups. It's for all languages. It's not just for one country, one type of person, male, female, Jew, Gentile. It doesn't matter. It's for all. It is for anybody who is willing to believe in their heart and confess with their mouth. So it's on the heels of that that he says, verse 14. Now, I want us to spend some time here. Look at verse 14 through 16. He says, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? 
And how are they to believe in him on whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless, someone, unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Now, one of the common pushbacks to what I've been trying to articulate over the last several weeks out of Romans chapter nine is if God is going to have mercy on whom he's going to have mercy, if God's going to save whomever he's going to save, then why can't we just drink my ties and, and hang on the beach? Now, good Baptist people don't phrase it like that, but that's kind of the idea, right? They, they say, why do we have to evangelize? Why do we have to preach? If God's going to do it, then why do we have to do anything? Well, number one, because he told you to. If that were not reason enough, then let me give you another one. Paul uses four rhetorical questions here, and he's helping us understand. And I think this is important. This is chapter 10, which I don't know if you realize this, but chapter 10 comes right after chapter nine. I know that's foundational, man, but in chapter nine, he talks about God saving. And then after in chapter 10, he talks about our responsibility. It's not my responsibility to save, but what is my responsibility? To preach. And then he uses this, these rhetorical questions as how can they be saved unless they believe? Or how can they call on him unless they have not believed? How can they believe unless they hear? How can they hear unless someone's preaching? And how can they preach unless someone's sent? Now, I want to distinguish for you what logic or philosophers would call necessary conditions versus sufficient conditions. Necessary conditions are the things that are necessary for something to happen. Sufficient conditions means if it's present, it's going to happen. So there's things that are necessary for something to happen, but just because they are necessary doesn't guarantee that it will happen. But a sufficient condition, if that is met, it guarantees it. Let me use an example here. Necessary conditions for fire is something to burn up, oxygen, and a spark. Those are necessary. You take the oxygen out of the room, the fire goes away. But just because you have those three things, they're necessary, but just because you have them, it doesn't mean you're going to have a fire. Does that make sense? You with me so far? Just because you have that doesn't mean there's going to be a fire, which thank God, because if that were the case, and every time we breathed in oxygen, right, we would set our lungs on fire. But those are necessary, but they're not sufficient. They don't guarantee that a fire will happen if those three things are there. So in the same way, Paul is distinguishing here between necessary conditions and sufficient conditions when it comes to salvation. What are the necessary conditions? Someone's got to be sent. Someone's got to preach. Someone's got to believe, right? Or someone's got to hear the preaching and then someone's got to believe. Those are four necessary conditions. But if those conditions are necessary, it doesn't mean they are sufficient. Why? Because the sufficient condition is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who makes it happen, but he does it, listen, through these necessary conditions. So why do we need to preach if God's going to save? Because God didn't just ordain who was going to be saved. He ordained the means to which by they are saved. He ordained the fact that people are saved when someone preaches. Because they can't believe if they don't hear and they can't hear unless someone preaches and they can't preach unless someone's sent. 
Now let's, let's have a little conversation about this because that word there is sent, the Latin version of that word is missio. It's where we get our English word mission. And I think one of the biggest failures of the modern church is we have dedicated missions to like these Navy SEAL Christians, like these super secret, super trained Christians. And and I get this question often. We do our welcome lunch every month and almost every month I get a question about how do y'all do missions here at Revolution or what about the missions department? And I will lovingly respond back to them. I say, listen, here at Revolution Church, we do not have a missions department. And and depending upon people's church background, they kind of look at me bewildered. Like, what do you mean by that? And here's my example. I say, well, that's like saying that the Falcons have a football department. Now, we can debate whether or not they do, all right? But isn't that the whole mission of the Falcons? To play and win football games? And I think one of the greatest failures in the modern church is we have failed to understand that the entire mission of the church is to preach and people to know Jesus. That's the whole mission of the church, And it's not reserved for these super select Navy SEAL trained Christians that go be missionaries in other countries. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't train them because in some countries you have to act like a Navy SEAL. You gotta be undercover, know what you're doing, right? Because you can get thrown in jail. I'm not saying we shouldn't do that, but here's what I'm saying. You can be a missionary to your own country too where you live. That's the mission of the church. And so why should we preach Why should the church evangelize? Why should you try to win people to Christ? One, because he said so. And two, that's our whole reason for existence. That's our mission. But here's where most Christians don't realize that the great commission in Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, where Jesus said, go make disciples. Most of us don't realize that that's not just a command, but it's an invitation Think about the word, the great co-what? Mission. Did you catch the word there? It's not just commission, it's co-mission. Mission is make disciples. But here's the cool part. There's co. Now, what does co mean? Co to co-mission means we're not alone. We are getting to join Jesus in what he's doing. And so the mission of the church is to make disciples. And Paul's saying, why should we preach? Because if we don't preach, they won't hear. And if they won't hear, they won't believe. Well, I thought you said God's gonna save people. He is. Just the more I preach, the more they get saved. And and so there's this sense, again, and I want you to understand this. You're a missionary. This is why I don't do well with the modern American retirement mentality. Because people are like, well, I'm going to work a job, get a nest egg, retire, move to Florida and play golf. Hey, listen, if you want to do that, fine. But you never retire from your mission. You can retire from your job, but you never retire from your mission. So if you're going to move to Florida and play golf, don't just yell for, yell Jesus while you're doing it. Because you are sent there to be a missionary. So missionaries are not people who are just super secret that we send off to foreign countries. It's you who God is saying, listen, I'm going to save your neighbor. You want to be co on it? 
And this is the part that I love. And this is, I gotta be honest with you. I don't understand why people don't like the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. Because here's how I think about it. I think about the doctrine of the sovereignty of God, that God can overcome anybody's resistance to him. And so I have these dreams about me talking to the, like the worst criminals on the planet and, and just having this confidence of going to them and saying, listen, Jesus can save you. That's a dream. I'm not saying I would be this confident in real life yet, but I keep having these visions and, and here's what I keep feeling like God's saying to me. Jason, I have the power to give you to lead the person that you would think would never come to Jesus because it's not about you and it's not even about them. It's about me. And this is why I love the doctrine. God can overcome anybody's resistance to him. All he's saying to us is, hey, I'm gonna save this person. You wanna help? I'm gonna overcome this person's resistance. You wanna play? Then live sent. Live sent and preach. And this is, this is one of those things when Christians, these pithy statements that we say, people like, preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. <laughs> words are necessary. They're necessary. Like, please, if that is on a shirt, go home and burn it today in the name of Jesus and Instagram it. I will tag you. Yes. It is necessary to use words. I've yet in 28 something years of following Jesus had somebody come up to me. I've just been watching your life. What are you doing? Use words. Now, Here's, I'm not saying actions don't matter because actions validate my words. So when I speak, I better have integrity with my actions, but don't think that I can just act and not speak because God has ordained the foolishness of preaching because they can't believe if they don't hear and they can't hear unless someone preaches and they can't preach unless you live on mission. And so all of us, if you are saved, you are a missionary and God is calling you and equipping you by his spirit and sending you out. And sometimes he'll send you to a foreign country and sometimes he will send you to your neighbor. And both of those are the ends of the earth. And so here's what you got to see. And, and, and I want you to understand this because I don't ever want you, I don't ever want you to question the motivation behind reaching more people. Because again, you wanna know the vision of Revolution Church? It's to multiply, unashamedly. Why? Isn't the church big enough? Ain't about a big church. It's about people knowing Jesus. Well, I mean, look around. We got a lot of people here. Yeah, that's great. But look around out there. There's a lot of people still lost. And so we're gonna plant campuses. You know why we planted Jasper campus? Because people in Jasper needed to know Jesus. Well, they got enough churches in Jasper. Well, aren't you glad we didn't say that before we planted one in Canton? Yes, good. I'm so glad that Westridge Church that planted us 15 years ago didn't say they got enough churches in Canton. No, they said, we're gonna send some people as missionaries to Canton. Why? Because it's a growing area and they need Jesus. And so that's the vision of our church. And I just want you to understand that. I mean, you go to a church by the name of Revolution Church. So our vision as a church is to multiply the gospel. And we'll do that through planning campuses, through planning churches all over the world, sending people out as missionaries to their cities. And that's the vision of the church. And I want to do it in such a way 
Where, as he says here, he quotes Isaiah, how beautiful are the feet of those who spread the good news. What's crazy, and I didn't realize this, but historically speaking, this is Isaiah. This concept comes from when countries thousands of years ago would be in battle. And they would go off to fight a war, but the people that were back in the hometown when the people were out fighting, they didn't know whether they had won the battle or not because there wasn't CNN and Fox News, which you got to know, that means it had to be a better time. Not because the people were better back then, we just didn't know about all their evil. And now you got social media. Woo! I don't need to know all your evil. And so what would happen is they would go out and fight. And historically, what's crazy, back in the 5th century BC, there was a time when Greece was fighting the greatest army on the planet at that time, Persia. And they fought three great battles. One of them, the movie 300 was made about because they fought in this past. Another one, they fought on the plains of a city called Marathon. And they won. And it was a shocking victory. And they sent back this cat named Phid- Phidippides. I think I said that right. And he had to run back to Athens to make the announcement of we won. And history says it was about 26 miles. And so why is the modern marathon 26.2 miles? It's because this dude ran from marathon Greece back to Athens. And when he ran back to Athens, they were anxiously awaiting, did we win? Now, I can relate to this guy because legend has it that when he ran back and announced the news, he died on the spot. I'm like, if you make me run a marathon, that's what's going to happen. I am not a runner. I don't have a runner's body. But here's the illustration of what Paul's saying. They could tell long before the person got to them, they could tell whether they had won or lost by looking at his feet. Before they ever heard his words, they could look at his feet. Because if he was running like most of us run a marathon called the survival shuffle, (laughs) and he was downcast, they knew we lost. We lost. But if he was running triumphantly, pounding the pavement, like I can't wait to get back and tell y'all, we won. They could tell by his feet. And so people started watching, man, how beautiful are the feet of those. Not that their feet were actually beautiful because they were probably dirty and gross. But they were bringing beautiful news. And here's what I'm saying to you as Christians. We need to run in such a way that tells people he won. He won. He won the victory. And yet there's so many of us as Christians that we're running like, oh, Jesus didn't come back. Now, listen, I'm going to be straight with you. There are times, and again, if I had to run a marathon, there would be times where I'd be like, just kill me now. And there are times when I'm running in this marathon of my life, My 26 miles, I'm not one of those that can run it in like three hours. It would take me about 26 years. But it's not about the distance. See, you may get 26 years, you may get two years. It's not about how long it is, it's about how are you running? 
How are you running? Are you running in such a way where it is showing a lost and dying world? He won. And if you believe in him, you'll win. So, so many times in our churches, the reason why we're not seeing God move in miraculous ways is because we're not running like he actually won. We're not running like we're more than a conqueror, Paul said in chapter eight. Man, life is tough, yes, but Jesus won. And, and I gotta be honest with you, I do not, and that's what I was referring to earlier when I talk about retirement. I don't wanna live, I don't wanna live my life in such a way where the last 15, I was just coasting. So I'm 41 now, I don't know how long I got, but here's what I know, I'm gonna run like tomorrow's all I got. And I ain't gonna shut up. I'm not gonna quit preaching. I'm not gonna quit telling people about Jesus because that's the mission that I was made for. And this is when we have conversations with God. God, I can't say it. And this is why I say this often. One of my favorite verses, Jeremiah 1. God's like, who made your mouth? I said this last service. I don't know why I always make God ghetto, but it's just, I do. Like I just, because that's how he talks to me. But I can't tell you how many times on, on a Sunday I'll come out here service after service. God, I can't do it. And God's like, I made you. I made your mouth. You just open it and I'll speak. Well, God, I can't lead this church. I can't save them. Never asked you to. I got that part. I'm the sufficient condition. I just want to use you. And that's the most amazing part that gives me so much confidence week in and week out to come and preach and lead and share my faith with others is God doesn't have to use me, but for whatever reason he wanted to. And so if you want to feel alive, become Jesus's co in the mission. Philemon chapter one, if you want to memorize a great Bible, it's a Bible uh, book of the Bible, Philemon, it's one chapter. Philemon six, be active in sharing your faith so that you'll know the joy you have in Christ. Most Christians live joyless, powerless lives because they have no mission. They have no mission. They have no sense of purpose. And you don't have to work at a church to get that. But Paul says, I mean, live on mission, preach. If you don't preach, they won't hear. If they don't hear, they can't believe. And yes, God's gonna save them, but he's ordained it in such a way where he's like, hey, you wanna come help me? And this is what I love, man. I don't know how long I'll get but I can't wait to spend all eternity with Jesus and talk about, dude, when you did that, that was crazy. When you moved us from Texas to Georgia, that was nuts, Jesus. When you sent us on mission to Kenya, that was crazy, Jesus. I can't believe you did that. When you grew that church from 500 to this and camp, that was crazy. When you saved that dude who said his marriage was done, Jesus, that was nuts. Thank you for letting me be a part of that. And so many of us live half-fulfilled lives because we're missing out on the very reason why you were made was to be on mission with him. So why share your faith? Not just because God said so. Why live on mission? Why help build the church? Why spread the gospel? Not just because God said so. because you'll be fulfilled 
in him as you do it. Last two verses, verse 16 and 17. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So understand that not everybody's gonna believe. That's not my job. My job is just to make sure that everybody hears. Because faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. So why is it necessary to someone preach every week? Why is it necessary to preach the word of God every week? Because God has put his power in this book. And when we open and expose you to this book, his spirit opens your eyes to see the truth of who he is. And so there may be some of you here today and you have never trusted Christ. In just a second, I'm gonna give you an opportunity to confess, but I want you to understand, like I said earlier, it's not about praying a prayer. Because you can pray a prayer and leave here and not be saved. It's are you trusting at the core of who you are in Christ alone? But then there's some of us here, man, and we have trusted Christ. But if we were honest, we've been phoning it in when it comes to mission. And I just want to reiterate this again. The mission of the church is making disciples. And we're not going to stop doing that. Because if we stop doing that, what are we doing here? So join in on the mission, man. And not just at church, but, but live as a missionary. Again, you don't have to quit your job to work at the church. In fact, it would actually hamper the mission if you did. We need you at your job. Just live on mission there. And use words because they are necessary. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you could save somebody like Paul who had the most resistance in the world. Who, if we were honest, we would, we would say today, if he lived today, there's no way. And there are people today that we look at and we're like, there's no way. But you can overcome anybody's resistance. And so God, I pray right now for anybody who doesn't know Jesus. I pray that they would be intellectually honest enough. You don't have to be intellectually dumb to trust Jesus, God. You actually have to be intellectually honest to admit that we just don't know for sure until we die and find out ourselves unless we trust in the one who did. And so if there's anybody here who hasn't confessed Jesus, who hasn't believed in their heart that Jesus rose from the dead, I pray right now you'd save them. Nobody looking around or talking here as we close. If you've never trusted Christ, I'm gonna lead you in an opportunity to confess. 
But like I said earlier, it's not about praying a specific prayer. But if you're convicted in your heart, then God is opening your eyes to see the truth. And if you confess and truly trust, you'll be saved. So if you wanna trust Jesus right there where you are, you can pray with me, not out loud. And it goes like this, say, Father, thank you for loving me. That you sent Jesus down from heaven to earth to live a sinless, perfect life, to die the death that I deserve. But not only that, he came back to life again, proving that he's God and he has the power to save. So I confess my sins to you and I believe in my heart that Jesus rose from the dead. And I ask you to forgive my sins and save me. Nobody looking around or talking again as we close, but if you just trusted Christ, then I'm gonna ask you to do one thing. And this thing, again, is not part of the confession process. It's just simply so that we can know. So if you just prayed and trusted Christ, nobody looking around, would you just simply lift your hand up so we can see that? Thank you. We just wanna simply give you a gift. And when you receive that, you can put your hand down. But then those of us who've trusted Christ, I'm praying that God would give us all a renewed sense of mission, a renewed sense of love for the local church. Because God doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. He said very clearly he could raise up rocks to do it. But he wants us. He's invited us to be a part of what he's doing. And man, there is no greater feeling on the planet than knowing you're a part of something bigger than yourself that is going to have eternal significance. There is no greater cause than advancing the gospel. There's all kind of good things that we can do in the world and we should do them, but there is nothing as great as the Great Commission. And so as a church, we're gonna stay focused on that, making disciples of all nations while we run this marathon of our life and then when we get to the end, <laughs> we'll die and meet Jesus and celebrate all he did. God, thank you for this. Thank you for the encouragement it's been to me in your word that you love saving people and you love using messed up people like us to do it. What a privilege it is, God, to be a co-laborer with you. What a privilege and honor it is to serve in your house, to help people know and follow Jesus. May we never feel the burden of that because you carry the burden of actually making it happen. But may we just carry the responsibility. Thank you for a church that's committed 
to grow in people and doing it out of our love for you. And we thank you for all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.